Hi, this is Eric Skye, and you're listening to the Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. I'm going to crack on with the interview with Eric any second now, but just before I do, just let you know to stick around at the end because I'm going to play a track from Eric and Jamie's new record, Over the Waterfall, at the end. So it's a pretty cool chance to go listen to that. Um, and I will link to all the stuff that Eric chats about in the show notes. So you've got kind of direct links to all that stuff. But that's it. Hope you enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this interview with Eric Sky. Um, yeah, here he comes. Uh, my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Eric Sky. Um, and Eric probably doesn't fit most people's definitions of a bluegrass guitarist. And Eric probably doesn't fit most people's definitions of a guitarist in any particular genre, which is one of the reasons I'm so keen to talk to him. Um, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I first heard your music. Um, I'm a member of a bluegrass guitar group on Facebook that's run by a guy called Alan St. John. And oh, he posted right. some, yeah, he posted links to some of your videos with a very short caption that probably said something like, shut up and listen or listen and learn or, you know, very brief. <laughs> and I, it was a couple of videos of you playing fiddle tunes pretty slowly with a lot of breath and a lot of space. And I just sort of fell in love with that sound. Um, and as soon as I saw that you had a new record out with Jamie Stillway of Fiddle Tunes, I thought, well, what a great chance to talk to you. Um, and I'd like, if we can, just to sort of dive back a little bit and do a little bit of the uh, the David Copperfield stuff, if that's all right. Um, just really keen to sort of know how you got into guitar in the first place. And, you know, um, I got my first guitar for Christmas man when nixon was president <laughs> so this was like I, I almost don't even remember i'm 50 i'm about to turn 57 and i i think that would have been when i was seven so it, it's been a really really long time and um and i kind of noodled around I, I grew up in sort of rural pennsylvania um so i didn't really have a guitar teacher and no one in my um family was a guitarist or a musician so i really just kind of noodled it around on it until we moved to um the Silicon Valley when I was um, like 12 or 13 and got a proper guitar teacher and studied um, some classical guitar. Um, but I was also very interested in rock. You know, I loved uh, Jimmy Page and, and that, that kind of, that kind of thing. And then also at that same time, um, sort of the early eighties in the Bay area, the, the Wyndham Hill thing was happening all around mm -hmm. me. Like you could go to a bookstore and see like, you know, Alex DeGrassi or Michael Hedges or, 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 uh, William Ackerman and, and, uh, Tuck and Patty and that kind of thing. So, um, I think all those things kind of merged to, together. I think that's how I got really interested in acoustic guitar in particular. I would say, um, handful of just really transformative moments for me. One for sure was, I think in ninth or 10th grade, one of my friend's mothers gave me a cassette tape with the first two Alex DeGrassi records on it. And uh, I didn't know what it was. She's like, this is guitar music. You should listen to it. And I put it on with headphones before I went to bed. And uh, I can tell you now, like 40 something years later, it completely re rewired my brain. Um, I just couldn't believe it was just one guitar player. I think the, the, the steel string sound, it sounded like where I was, California, the Redwoods, the, that time. Um, and it, it just, I identified with it. And, um, and that's still kind of like where I'm, kind of coming from, if that makes sense. So um, I think whether I'm playing jazz or, 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 you know, more traditional music or, or whatever, it's always kind of coming from that solo steel string 
perspective from from that. Um, but yeah, and I also um, I got interested in 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 jazz, and so um, I think like Tuck and Patty was kind of happening around me. So I got really interested in, in Tuck Andress's guitar style and solo guitar. I remember seeing him and thinking, "Wow, that's just like one dude," and he was playing all this stuff. And that was so cool to me. And, and, um, so I had a kind of a jazz teacher going for a while too. So, um, I've always been pretty eclectic, you know, to, to a fault, but I think that the thing that runs through it all is that, um, that acoustic steel string sound. Um, and I think as you mentioned earlier, like that sort of sparseness, I like music that has space, whether that's few instruments, uh, or as if I put on my production hat, few microphones, <laughs> um, or, or just, you know, space between phrases and space between notes. You know, I just, I like to have, that's, that's another thread that I think runs through the music that I, I try to make, but also that I, that I love. And that's really interesting. I think, um, when I first heard you play, you know, you, it's easy in a Facebook sort of group essentially there for bluegrass guitarists to hear. A, it's easy to hear a lot of fast picking. And I love all that. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy all that as well. But mm -hmm. um, the two people who I would see videos of that just would, I think, catch my ear just because of exactly what you say, the space and the breath, the breath and just allowing things to, it was your videos and Bob Minner's as well. Like Bob. Oh, I love Bob. Okay, great. <laughs> and it's yeah. just that, it's that thing of, it's a bit like listening to Miles Davis after listening to John Coltrane. Yeah, and just you know, that sense of like almost space to look at a note from different angles because you've got the time to do it and just hear it in context and hear how it's been affected by the other notes around it and you know I love all that um, and I think that's that's what drew me to listening to your music and uh, most if not all of the stuff I've heard of yours is either solo or in an acoustic duet of some form. It's, you know, they're very yeah. very sparse recordings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never gone anything bigger than a trio. I had a, a string trio for a few years there. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Bob because um, I, I think of Bob as a friend and we've run into each other a few times. I know when he came through Portland with, um, who is it he plays with the big country guy? Tim McGraw, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was in, twice. I was like sort of invited to the, the hotel during the day and we would just have some jams and stuff and then at some of the fretboard journal events and stuff. I love playing with Bob and I'm a huge admirer of his style. So thanks for mentioning Bob. And, uh, and then, yeah, Miles Davis, that's a huge influence on me. I don't know if you know, but like in 2012, I made a, a record of the whole kind of blue thing on my, um, on my guitar. So I, you know, I've done some deep dives into, um, in Miles Davis. And yeah, that's, that's always been the thing that uh, appeals to me about Miles is playing too. Is to, I mean, if you listen to his early, stuff there's no doubt that he could play the shit out of the trumpet you know i mean yeah, yeah. but that but then as he matured he, he just like i don't need to do all of that anymore and and um and his and he got more and more space in there and uh it's just really appealing to me yeah and it's it's funny sort of mentioning bob because it feels and i don't you know i've interviewed bob a couple of times but i don't know him and i don't know you but it, it feels like there's a sort of shared um love of all sorts of guitar related things. You sort of, you know, you're very involved with your own guitar model with Santa Cruz. I think Bob does a lot of development work with Collings. You mm -hmm. both seem incredibly interested in getting a nice sound out of an acoustic guitar in a room. There's just so many sort of parallels, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can talk about acoustic guitar tone for the rest of the interview if you want. I mean, that's just such a great, you know, thing in life. <laughs> and, and it's an elusive thing too. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I get it. And is this sort of, um, cause you, you've done a lot of finger style as well as a lot of flat pick stuff. That's right. And you know, does the, do you tend to do one playing solo and one playing in duets? Was it, is it entirely the material that dictates sort of how you go? Yeah. You know, it depends when you ask that question. I think in recent years, I would say it's when I am playing like jazz and blues, I'm playing finger style. And when I'm playing, I guess what I'm going to call traditional music. So flat picking, um, then I'm playing with a pick. But very recently I'm working on, um, another record that I'm hoping to release this spring. That'll be my first finger style record. That's really not sort of jazz and blues. And, um, so I'm not exactly sure what that's going to be, but, but, uh, or how to categorize it. But so now I'm kind of going into a little in between zone, but that's how I've sort of divided it for, for a while. When I had like the trio, I would, I would play, um, trio with bass and drums, like a, like a jazz trio. I would play fingers, finger style, um, in that as well. But around the house, I probably mostly flat pick cause I just, it's so much fun. Was the, the sort of the more traditional stuff there throughout for you, or did that sort of come later than the jazz and the blues? Say, say that again? So the more, the more traditional repertoire, playing the older tunes, was that something that came later, or was that always part of the mix for you? Oh, right. Um, no, it came later. Yeah, I would say, um, so like I was saying earlier, I started playing guitar in the early 70s as a kid, and um, and then kind of got into jazz and stuff around middle school. So that's been kind of a long road um, and didn't get into more traditional music until probably the mid nineties. In fact, I was just telling somebody, I remember very specifically is 1994. I was driving uh, in Northern California, a little town in Calistoga at night and, and on NPR, our public radio here, um, they played uh, the Tone Palms record that David Grisman and Tony oh, Rice. And, yeah. and I was sort of, you know, um, you know, I've been reading Fretz magazine since I was a kid, you know, so I, I know who Tony Rice was at that point, kind of, you know, but I wasn't really listening to that music too much. And I heard that Tone Palms record and um, literally pulled over the car, you know, when they said who it was and wrote it down. And I went to the the record store the next day and, and, and bought that album. And just, we listened to that record just all the time. Um, and, and that, that was a big one. And then, and then also in the late nineties, um, trying to think, Oh yeah, I bought a, I kind of randomly bought a David Greer album. The one, the trio one with, um, Matt Flinner and, and, uh, Todd Phillips, that yeah. the first one, that sort of orange cover. Um, which isn't so blue. It's not really bluegrassy, really. It's kind of, I guess, new grass or whatever it is. Like th they each wrote three originals and, um, that one really also kind of another big moment for me that really rewired my brain. And I went and saw him live around then around 98, 99, he came to a club in San Francisco where I was living at the time. And uh, I was pretty pretty blown away. So that got me really interested in that music and then started really doing deep dives and, and, and learning 40, 50, 60 fiddle tunes and writing them out. Um, and of course I've always been a guitar teacher. I started teaching in like 1987 or something like that. So I'm always, um, you know, putting together material, 
um, for students and stuff. So I started really writing out the fiddle tunes and that's always a great way to, to, to learn. Best way to learn is to teach. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, you know, it's, if you can do something, that's one thing. If you can describe what you're doing to somebody else that you have to understand it on a different level, don't you? You have to be able to explain not just what, but why and how. Yeah. Oh man, it took me a few years. My my first couple students, I remember they never came back because I told them everything I knew about the guitar in like 45 minutes. And I think their head exploded and they left, you know, and, um, or maybe I just play, you know what I mean? But, but then, but then over as the years go on, you really learn, yeah, how to explain it. And then when you have to put together the material and you have to, um, you know, with fiddle tunes and jazz tunes, you know, you need to come up with these kind of, um, bass arrangements right i mean if you just learn like tony rice's version of of red haired boy like that's you know embellishments on top of a kind of the core tune you know you have to get to the actual tune and that's what i've always wanted to sort of write out for students so that they have this you know um just the melody as much as possible in 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 a key and and you know and using the chords that you can play anywhere you know in the world hopefully with other musicians i think that's one of the things i found hardest when i first started learning fiddle tunes was knowing what the actual tune was because like, there's all these different versions of it out there it, I, this may be an oversimplification but it feels like with jazz because so much of it was standards and show tunes or just sort of you know heads written by particular players there's it's easier to find a definitive version of a jazz standard than a, a fiddle tune sometimes I would agree with that, particularly because if you're hip to jazz, you know, you could always get the real book and that would be it. But, but, but if that didn't exist, then, then I don't know. I might push back on that a little bit because, you know, if you were just listening to, um, you know, Ornette Coleman <laughs> you know, <laughs> playing a bossa nova tune, you would have no idea what the hell it was probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like even in that, even in that jazz world, um, when I would make arrangements and stuff, I would usually seek out vocal versions. You know, if you could get Ella Fitzgerald singing uh, Stella by Starlight, then you could really kind of pick out the melody more than uh, maybe Art Tatum taking a solo on it or something. Yeah, yeah. And was the first sort of project you did around that, the June Apple duets with Tim Connell, was that sort of the first fiddle tune record? That, that's right, yeah. Yeah. It's I love that record. It's... um. It's really interesting. We'll talk about this in a bit when we talk about the duet records where you've got two guitars, but guitar and mandolin, you know, they occupy very different sonic spaces and very they're very um, sort of easy to put together in some ways. Absolutely, as a producer, it they they you 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 nailed it. They're in completely. He can play the crap out of the mandolin as hard as he wants, and I can do the same thing on the guitar, and they never sort of. Um, you know, get in each other's way. But with the two guitars, it can, it's like having two pianos. It's really easy to get, uh, what we call masking, you know, when mm. you're kind of, um, competing for the same frequencies or whatever. Yeah. It's really fun to, to do the guitar mandolin thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you've, you've maybe got a little bit less body in terms of the mandolin accompaniment, but people who know how to do it, like you, you're never going to worry about that, you know? So and that's a, a good really cool thing, I, th right? And that's a good thing because I'd rather not, because again, I like the sparseness. Hmm. You know, I mean, I always think like with with my three three duo records or three different duos I've done with Mark Goldenberg, Jamie Stillway, Tim Connell, respectively. The great news about all three of them is they're amazing 
uh, solo artists. So I always think when I'm playing with them, my, my mindset um, is that I could go sit in my car <laughs> and, and the show goes on like, you know, so I don't need to do a lot. Um, it's, it's already there. So I'm just thinking like how to kind of stay out of the way as much as possible. Um, so, and I just generally don't like, you know, sometimes I'll get together with somebody and they're really nice and everything, but if they're playing really busy accompaniment and it's, you know, all over the place and it's filling up a huge amount of space, then to me, it's a little bit of a turnoff and it's hard to hear that, um, the melody, you know, in that way. Yeah. And there's something, um, there's something really cool about that duet setting. And I, I love acoustic music in like so many forms because just the sound of an instrument that somebody physically has to get that sound out of the instrument without, you know, any effects or any, you, if you, if the instrument has to stay in great, if it doesn't great, like you have to make the sound yourself. Um, but there's something particularly special about acoustic sort of duet and trio records because you've got the thing of a conversation going on that you don't necessarily have with a solo record, but the space around things to hear what the instruments are doing and to hear almost to hear people listening to each other and talking to each other. And that's obviously going on in a busier environment, but it's just an easier thing to get your ears around sometimes when there's only a couple uh, of people there. I totally agree. Um, um, yeah. When there's two people, it can, the conversation can kind of go anywhere, just like you and me right now, if there was a third person on this call, you know, then it, it becomes much harder. It, it is doable. Um, going back to the jazz world that the, the, the Bill Evans live at the village Vanguard is a good example of like three people improvising and kind of seemingly listening to each other and pulling each other. Uh, that's a great, you know, trip. If you ever want to put on a pair of headphones and lay down and listen to that. And it's, it's just so amazing. But the more people you get, the more than you need to fall into that role of like, okay, we're going to hold down the fort and now you're up front and now, you know, and then, and then that agreement switches or whatever. But when you have the two people, it's, it's, um, one of the things I love about playing with Jamie and Mark, I guess in particular, like, um, is that role kind of, those roles kind of fall away. And sometimes it just gets kind of intertwined, uh, a little bit. And that can, that to me, that's really exciting. And as I always like to joke, like, you know, in these projects I'm involved in, no one's singing, <laughs> no one's dancing. I mean, this is it. This is the show. It's the, it's uh it's like the movie my dinner with andre right it's just like it's, it's all one scene of just two people talking and if that doesn't get off the ground then there's really nothing happening yeah and they're not um we'll sort of come on to the new record uh, in a sec but, like, but they're not sometimes with two instruments you could do a three minute version of a fiddle tune and you've said it all and that's it and it's done but they're you know they're there's some longer versions of these tunes there and you, it's a sustained conversation. And if that, if either of you drops the ball halfway through, it all sort of dies in the water, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I'm really keen to talk about that. You've done a couple of records now with Jamie Stillway. Before we mm -hmm. sort of dive into the records, it'd be really cool if you just tell us a bit about Jamie for those who don't know her. Yeah. Well, Jamie's one of my favorite people in the whole world. One of my closest friends now. Um, she's an amazing artist. Um, you know, I mean, she's a killer guitar player, um, obviously great technique. I'm learning a lot from playing with her, great tone and all of that, but, uh, even more so she's a great composer and a great writer of tunes with a deep catalog and a deep perspective in her own voice. Um, so, and, um, Jamie used to live here in Portland. Now she, she doesn't, uh, but right before she moved, we, we started 
became closer friends. She's also involved with the Santa Cruz Guitar Company. And so uh, we used to go to the NAMM show every year. And then we would, we all, everyone with that company would get like a big house and it was a big party and stuff. And, and her and I like would bond late at night, just playing these tunes, even though she really wasn't come from this. So I told you, I started getting this music in the late nineties. She, she, you know, she's like, all right, well, I'll try it. You know, like, um, she just was game. Cause that's, that's another thing that I admire about Jamie is she's just totally fearless. Um, with, uh, you know, playing and, and, and improvising and stuff. So she kind of just recently came to this tunes, uh, by the way, it was kind of the same thing with Tim. And I think that that's been a good thing, you know, as a kind of a, with my producer hat on, it's kind of a fun thing to do to, because to bring people who are kind of not, who didn't grow up like playing this stuff in parking lots at bluegrass festivals and stuff. Um, and yet are great players and have their, their own perspective or whatever. But uh, anyway, her and I started playing kind of late night stuff um, at the NAMM show, just the two of us. And we kind of got in these long kind of intertwined jams. And I'm like, wow, there's definitely something here. Um, so that's that's how we got involved. And of course, she moved away. She she lives um, in the next state up in Washington. But, you know, it's a it's a like a half day to get together or whatever. So so so. So that's kind of, it's kind of the same thing with Mark Goldenberg being down in LA. I think, um, I have this thing with duo partners that live, you know, further away. And I think that's, I think it's kind of a good thing because I think if we practiced, it would kind of ruin what we do. I think it's kind of fun since what we are doing, you know, not to beat this cliche into the ground, since we are doing is a conversation, um, it's just like if you, you know, you and I have a lot to talk about. We've never, we've never met. We haven't, you know, we've never talked before. We can probably sit here all afternoon and talk and it's exciting to talk to you. Um, but, you know, if we talked every day, it wouldn't be so exciting, you know? And so we try to, or as Mark says, we don't, you know, try not to leave the fight in the gym, you know, just um, so, so her being living up there has, has been really nice since we only get together for gigs and recording. And um, that's, that's it's, it's really interesting analogy, actually, just because, you know, I, I come into these conversations with all sorts of people and I have, you know, I'm looking across to my right now, I've got a screen full of two pages of notes that I've made in advance. And I do mm -hmm. my research and I do all the prep. And often as not, I don't really use the notes in the interviews. I kind of just we go where this that stuff's in my head because I've done my prep. And mm -hmm. then we go where we go. And it would mm -hmm. it would sort of ruin the flow if I stopped and went back and go, well, I've got this point I want to make. Can we go back? I want to talk about this that doesn't fit where we're talking. And a, yeah. a sort of musical conversation can be the same. It can be a, a delivery of pre-rehearsed opinions. Like it's like you sit in the pub and talk to people and everybody just tells you what they think. They're not listening. They're not, nobody really wants conversation. They're just delivering opinions to you. And that's not, that's no fun. And music can, can be the same if you, you know, if you overdo it or you just come in wanting to show people what you can do. So I think that's it's a beautiful analogy for it. And it sounds like a music as a conversation is not earth shattering news to anybody, but it, but it's true. It takes, I, I totally agree with you. And it, and, and I think the reason that you feel that way as an interviewer is because you've done this a few times now and you're experienced and you're confident and you trust that you're going to keep listening and having ideas and stuff. Um, I think when you first start, it's not so easy. And I think when musicians first start, you know, you, you want to kind of stay close to the plan and, and you're nervous about sort of going with the flow and stuff. And, and also not to, you know, beat this analogy in the ground, but it is also nice to know that you do have your notes in case things don't get off the ground. And I always say like with my 
solo jazz arrangements and stuff when I go to a show, people are always asking how much of that is improvised. And the answer is a lot, but I do have arrangements and they're there. And and because some sometimes it, it isn't flowing that much. And I I always have that arrangement. Um and one of the ways that um Jamie and I prepared to make these records, since we couldn't get together and like work out parts and things like that, uh, and didn't really want to, but we do spend a lot of time just working on the melodies independently. So for me, like with the new record over the waterfall, which is eight, um, kind of standard, you know, flat picking tunes, things like red hair boy and over the waterfall and stuff like that. Um, to me, the way to prepare for something like that is to play the melody over and over and over and over again and in different octaves and maybe in different places on the guitar, just so no matter where I am on the guitar, I'm sort of informed by the melody and I know where I am. So when Jamie and I are improvising together and it's sort of intertwined and everything, the, the thing that I think holds it together is I think we're both aware of where we are in the chord structure. So that's really important. Um, and where we are in the melody. In fact, to, to, to bear down on the court part of it. A lot of times in lessons with students is one of the, my most strongly held sort of convictions is I think you should be able to put down the guitar and say the chords out loud to the tunes that you're going to play over. Um, I mean, I've had, I, I have to do that all the time. Um, with the first record I did with Jamie, the more original record, then some of her tunes are more complicated and, and, um, with deeper, more complex chord changes and stuff. And so the way I prepared for that was mostly on my morning walk, just making myself say the chord changes. A lot of times I'll tap them out on my chest because I think you have to have a sense of time too. So I'm just making this up, but let's say, um, let's say you're playing the B part to, um, St. Ansreal, right? So it's just like one, four, five, one, I think. And so you would go C, two, three, four, F, two, three, four, G, you know, um, so you have a sense of, the time, right? So, and this, and the structure. So when we're improvising, you know, when, when we're playing over the chord C, you know, I can see F coming up on the horizon. I can see the next turn on the road and the turn after that and the turn after that so that I can sort of, you know, build momentum to towards those chords. I mean, I guess a lot of this goes without saying, but, um, how internalized you are with the chords, just kind of separate from, the guitar. Um, so in other words, sometimes people say, I know the chords, but they'll be sort of holding the guitar and they're just sort of playing them. And that's very differently. I'm seeing it kind of as an overlay in, uh, in my mind's eye, just like seeing the grid. And so when Jamie and I are kind of going down the rabbit hole and we're kind of both playing single notes at the same time, it can get a little wonky, but we know where we are in that structure and we're going to come out at the right but not always. <laughs> Sometimes it does get derailed, but most of the time, you know, we do come out in the right place because we know we are where we are in that structure. So that's a big thing for me is the memorization of the chords and the melody. Yeah. And that's something that I've heard on a few recordings like Mike Marshall and Chris Thiele's mandolin duets or hearing Chris Eldridge and Julian Large, there's points where they will both be just playing single note lines over each other sort of contrapuntally. And, and to somebody like, like me sitting there going like, is like, what, how, uh, what's the, what's going on? And, but that sense that they're both playing within an agreed chordal structure, they know exactly where they are. So everything they play is going to fit somehow and they can come back out of it whenever they're ready to, but to listen to it um, from the point of view of somebody who's not that far down the journey of being that proficient, 
it just sounds like complete freestyle. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is and it's complete it's, freestyle, but it's but, but it's within a structure. I mean, I yeah. really, I, I the deepest dive I've done on that is uh, with my record with Mark Goldenberg because that's one continuous take. Um, um, that whole record is just one long improvised thing. We each brought four tunes. We were each looking at four pieces of paper that we brought. Um, and it's that same idea. We just, you know, and his music is really pretty deep too. Um, but yeah, it's that, it's that thing of that. Well, we were looking at the paper, but <laughs> then we do, we do gigs. And actually we, at one point, I think we opened for Julian Lodge and, and Chris Eldridge. So it was kind of, kind of fun to be around that. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it's, it, that's what it's about. It's just kind of knowing where you are in the chords. Cause I, I guess where I was going with Mark is that we're both doing kind of chord substitutions in our heads too. Cause it's kind of like nerdy jazz in a way. <laughs> um, but it, as long as you know where you are in the structure, you're okay. You know? So anyway, yeah, and this, this may or may not be the same thing, but I, I heard David Greer once in an interview saying like improvising is basically just having a bunch of ways of getting from one chord to another. Um, mm -hmm. And you you memorize a load, and and the hope is that while you're playing, new ones will occur to you as you go. Uh, but yeah. it's it's just sort of a linear navigation between different destinations, and you learn certain ways of getting between one and the other. And you might make another one up, or you might get lost, or you might avoid it altogether and go straight to the one past it. But you've always got that sense of, yep. of you know where the next destination is. And when you're by yourself, like you know, it can be whatever you want it to be. And of course that's, there's a danger in that. And then like we were talking earlier, when there's two of you, it can be really amazing and organic and conversational. But as soon as you get a third person in there, <laughs> it becomes much, much harder, but yeah. And so just sort of looping back slightly to what you were talking about um, mm -hmm. with you and Jamie learning the melodies really sort of strongly and, you know, different registers. And, and that's an interesting part I was going to ask about really is the different registers, because if you've got two, similar sounding guitars together presumably mm -hmm. one of the ways you can get out of each other's way is is in different registers um, and there's there's parts in some of these tunes where you're playing in unison some where you're playing the same tune but in octaves and parts yeah. where you're you know and does the was there any sort of agreed starting points for keeping out of each other's way or did you just move around each other as you moved yeah so generally the one agreed thing is um the, you know for the the first 32 bars the first time through and the last time you know we will say hey why don't you know you let's let's do it together and usually that means i'll go low and she goes high so that's a sort of octave unison thing or we might play a little harmony i think we did a little harmony on this record and that stuff is sort of thought out in advance so so the whole tune the, the five minute track rather is sort of bookended by these you know like the agreed upon who's going to play the head or, or whatever. But then what happens in the middle, it just, you know, it just happens. We just listen to each other or whatever. And then um, to your point, yeah, there's times when I think we're both thinking like, Oh, you know, Jamie's going down, I'm going to go up or, or she's getting busy. So I'm going to get, I'm going to pull back and be more sparse. Or um, sometimes it's textural too. Like if I hear she's, playing like a real, a whole lot of like kind of open strings or floaties and something, I might be like, okay, now I'm going to play very muted with my palm or something. Or it's, it's, I'm always trying to think like, you know, what's happening now. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just listening and trying to go in the other direction to contrast, right? It's like photography or, or almost every other art, right? It's just, it's about contrast, right? So just kind of go, kind of go the other way, maybe. 
Um, cause you're both, you know, otherwise you're, you're writing on white paper with white ink, you know, <laughs> you're both kind of going full bore or something. So. And does that, presumably that extends to the instruments you're using as well. I'm presuming you're using your Santa Cruz signature model. Um, is yeah. Jamie sort of using a particularly different guitar or is it actually relatively similar? I mean, you know, I mean, to, to anybody outside of you and me, I mean, if we ask my wife, you know, she would say they're exactly the same. I mean, so it's, it's completely different than the guitar and mandolin thing or something. Or if maybe if Jamie was playing, uh, her arch top, which she also, she also has records, you know, playing arch top electric guitar or something, but two steel string guitars are, are for all intents and purposes, the same thing. Um, and our guitars on this record in particular, because I think the first record she played, um, her older Santa Cruz, her, her OM, um, and on this, this new record over, over the, the, the first record is called, um, Home on the Mid Range, which I, I always loved that title. Jamie came up yeah. with that, <laughs> but, uh, good guitar nerd title, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, on the new record, she's playing her newer Santa Cruz, which she had made and just sort of, I think she had taken delivery of not long before we made that record. Oh, and, cool. And I think, um, you know, I wish she was here to, to compare this, but I think she was sort of influenced by my guitar because like there's some, I know she likes my guitar. And so, so it's a 12 fret guitar also. It has the same scale length. I don't know how much you want to nerd out, but it's a 24.9 scale length. And that's, um, one of those things that I believe has a real big, uh, impact on, on how a guitar sounds as well as feels. And, um, Hers is a triple O, mine's a double O, but you know, these are, these are just tiny, really different. So hers is a little bit bigger. Hers is uh redwood and mahogany while mine is uh red spruce and, um, and cocobolo, which is just a res, uh, 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 a rosewood, but they're, they're very similar. Her guitarist maybe has like a kind of a stronger mid range. I mean, I mix the record, so I kind of, I'm pretty familiar with the sound and how they, um, and, and, you know, players have their own tone too. So it's hard to know where the guitar begins and the player, you know, where things begin and end there. Um, but I play a lot, I play around a lot with panning to try to kind of, uh, sound like we are really close together because we are, um, but to, to try to keep them separate too. So I, I probably spend more time with panning than anything else when it comes to recording two guitars. And to you, is that something that stays consistent? Is one of you sort of on one side for the whole record and the other on the other side? So if people were to go and listen to the new record, who would they find in which ear? Yeah, well, assuming you have your headphones or speakers wired correctly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm always on the left. Um, and that's true for all the records I've made. It's just easier for me as a mixer to just think, okay, that's my track and that's Jamie's track or Mark's track or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's so the way Jamie and I did this, the way we did the last one and, and this one even more so is it's very minimalist. Everything I do is minimalist. It just makes it easier on my sort of OCD personality or something, you know, like, so it's just the two of us sitting about one foot apart because we feel like that is our best sort of communication thing. We can hear each other really well. And we're sitting instead of, it's not a stereo microphone, but it's a stereo array. So it's two microphones on a mic clip that's set up in a particular um, fashion. So it's actually that record was sort of had the panning baked into it. Um, the, the mics are on the same stand, but they're about 90, 90 degrees away from each other um, and just a few inches. So, you know, there's not a lot you can really do <laughs> in terms of editing and stuff because I'm on Jamie's track and she's on my track. I mean, we're just a foot apart. Um, 
and yeah, we're always there. We're always just sitting there consistently the same. So. And I love that, that point that you made about, um, about tone being something that comes from the player because I, I've, um, talked about Tony Rice a lot on this podcast because it's, you know, a bluegrass podcast and I talk to guitarists and they all love Tony Rice. Um, sure. And I talked to Marcel Ardans, who runs the Lessons with Marcel YouTube channel. And he was saying one of the reasons oh, yeah. he thinks that Tony and Wyatt particularly like the ovations is that they just keep out of the way of a D28 because they've got a totally different sound. Um, they were really easy to mix in a band situation. But I also talked to Tim Stafford yesterday for a, another episode that's coming out in a couple of months. And um, and he was saying, you know, a lot of the times people couldn't tell whether Tony was playing the ovation on records or not because all they could hear was Tony. Absolutely. that I, I'm, I'm with the latter point. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll take it a step further. And this is, isn't totally true. I'm exaggerating this. But if you put on tone poems, the whole point of that record is that, that, that they're playing all different instruments. And obviously when he's playing like the, the Django style guitars, I mean, you can hear that, but it's easy to just be listening to that record and forget that every track is a different guitar and a different mandolin because that's, that's his style coming through. Um, you know, again, like if you, if you listen to that close, obviously that's not hundred percent true. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know which ones were the ovation and which ones did the D 28. Um, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely in your, in the player's hand. I mean, how much, um, I don't know if torque is the right word, you know, how much right hand pressure you put in and the angle at which you put that pick into the strings. Um, to me, it's all about the right hand, unless you're left handed. Um, you know, that's where so much of your, your, your tone is coming from. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like I can get my sound, um, from most guitars, you know, I, 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 I have a sound in my head. I have a concept of my tone, right? And if you give me your guitar, I'm going to kind of hunt around somewhere between the bridge and the end of the neck where I'm going to do where my right hand's going to do its thing. It's going to kind of unconsciously move around in that space until it finds that tone. I think that's closest to how my, my Santa Cruz double O sounds to me. And then, and then I might, further tweak by going slightly deeper into the strings and stuff. So tone is happening. People say it's happening in your hands. That's true. It's happening between your ears. It's it's in your head. It's your concept of your sound. It's what you listen to. Yeah. And it's, um, and it's like, it's, it's true in electric instruments as well. I don't know if I, used to, I spent a few years attempting to be a pedal steel player. Um, wow. And, and occasionally getting close to almost approximating one, but never quite getting there. And um, I had a couple of lessons with a British steel player called bj cole who is just an extraordinary musician um, wow. and he lived about a mile from where i did at the time and i i had this 700 pound starter pedal steel that sounded <laughs> like a you know and i played it and it sounded like a cheap pedal steel and i went round to his house for a lesson and he played it and it sounded like the most expensive instrument in the world because he just knows how to you know apply a thumb pick to a string and it, even on yeah. an electric instrument you know it was extraordinary to hear the difference yeah yeah. And that, that's another great thing about Jamie too, by the way, she always has great tone, you know, I, I, you know, another thing about tone is, is, um, it's, it's about listening. <laughs> I mean, everything in music is about listening. And I know it's, it sounds like a, you know, a silly thing to say, I guess, but sometimes we can get sort of so caught up in just trying to get the notes out. And, you know, in this music, it's hard, you know, it really is. I mean, I, I have pretty deep roots in the, you know, I've had a lot of jazz records and, you know, some accomplishment in that world. And I think this music is way harder. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, so, so you, we, we can get sort of, sort of caught up in trying to get all the notes out and play all, you know, play cleanly and, and remember the tune and, and then just sort of trust that we have good tone. We must have good tone. We bought a night, we bought an expensive guitar and we just changed the strings. I mean, it's, it's just there. Right. But if you're not actually listening to it, um, then it's, it's easy to kind of let that, let that go. So, you know, I'm on the West coast, so I, I, I can be a little woo woo with you, but you, I mean, you really, it's kind of like a yoga thing or something like you just have to keep some big chunk of your bandwidth involved in your sound at all times. Uh, and, and that's something I've learned as I've gotten older, you know, that, um, that my time and my tone are really the important things. And that's where I need to put my bandwidth. So I think I used to just think, I'm going to think about all the notes and all the chords and all of that. And I'll just trust that I'm in good time and I'll trust that I have good tone. And now it's the other way around. I'm putting more of my consciousness into my foot, you know, my, my, my sense of the groove and tone. And I'm just going to trust that, that, my, the variations of the melody are going to kind of come out. I don't know if that made sense. This is kind of a shift in consciousness in a way, but that's, totally, that's a big secret for time and tone is not letting go of it. Yeah. It totally makes sense. One of my favorite um, guitar players is Russ Barenberg. And me too. Like, Absolutely. His, his tone is astonishing and his groove is astonishing. And sometimes uh, he's playing a barely embellished version of the melody and I could listen to that all day. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Just, Another you know. one is um him and maybe it's these sort of Gibson playing uh uh flat picking guys. Um uh, um a friend of mine, Scott Nygaard, is another one who always has killer tone. He you know, he used to be at Acoustic Guitar magazine and when my signature model came out like eleven or twelve years ago, I just happened to be in um Marin County to play a gig with a mutual friend and and anyway, so I went into the office as acoustic guitar and um and I remember Scott's like, Oh, can I, can I check out your guitar? And I remember when he played, I'm like, Holy moly. Just like, it's fun to hear someone play your guitar. And then here it's like, yeah, that's, that's Scott. And I got, he's got a great tone too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed Scott for the podcast a while ago and just, uh, you know, what a lovely guy as well. But yeah, it's yeah. Just, he makes a lovely sound. Some of the, yeah, he's some one of my favorite playing, players. Some of the playing he's done on the Tim O'Brien records, you know, it's just some of my favorite. Yeah. Um, so kind of coming back to the, the record, well, the records with Jamie, actually, because it feels like the two duet records you've done kind of bookend each other a little bit in that they're both sets of fiddle tunes. It's probably reasonable to call the home on the mid range tunes, fiddle tunes in terms of structure. They feel like reels and they, yeah, you know, that my, f we each wrote four tunes. I would say that, um, my four tunes are definitely straight up you know, 32 bar reels, AA, BB. I mean, they kind of get, you know, through, they get put through our little meat grinder of, you know, weirdness and stuff. But the, but if you, if I gave you the lead sheet, <laughs> they're really straightforward. Whereas Jamie's tunes, like the title track and, and some of the other one, the other three that she wrote are not reels necessarily. Um, but, but in that vein, you know, they're in the vein of, they're more of a bluegrassy vein, right? Like a, like a country waltz and, um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the Home in the Midrange record, um I was listening to them both today and just sort of Home in the Midrange has got a a sort of more modern 
kind of it fits the the sort of new instrumental acoustic tradition of the past thirty or forty. You know, some of the Edgar Mayer and Yo Yo Ma stuff. Or it's like it feels like or Hawktail. It fits within that realm. Um, Thanks. And it's got a very the only way I could get my head around describing the difference is that record feels like spring and over the waterfall feels like autumn. It feels like the tunes are like ancient and it feels like there's something almost of the earth about them. And it's not just the tunes. It is. The, I mean, there's some modal tunes on there and things that definitely lead mm-hmm. it down that route, but just the way you approach them, the way you play them, they feel um, just very, very different in color. Yeah. Yeah, well, well put, and thank you. I, th- I like the way you put that. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of fun. I, in some ways, I almost wish it had did it the other way around because you know I want to um, get more in th- into the you know world of flat picking. You know, I, I want to kind of get into the consciousness of those players. I don't know what I'm trying to say, and um, so I think what's cool about this record is that these are tunes that you all know, you know, um, these are frequent flyers or whatever. Um, but yeah, the first record definitely, you know, when I think of like Jamie's tune wartime, Annie, it's just so, like I said, she's fearless. Like it's totally deconstructionist and, you know, and that was her version of, of ragtime Annie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. That was a cool tune to, to learn. And it's, you sort of say these are the, the sort of tunes everybody knows, but even just like listening to Cold Frosty Morning, which you did on the June Apple duets record yeah. as well. And that yeah. just even you involved with two different versions of that tune, they're very different. Yeah. You know, and so there is there is always something extra to bring to these tunes. That's why we love them. Yeah. And on this uh yeah, right. I was just gonna say, like I, I if you go back through as I'm working on my tenth record now, right now, I was just crazy. But yeah, there's there's a lot there are several tunes where I've recorded them two and three times. Well, there's going to be like three times on this, this newest one. Um, so I tend to not have a giant repertoire. I tend to just want to keep revisiting old tunes because you're bringing the new you (laughs) to it. You know, I have new perspectives or, or whatever. It's always changing, but yes, I guess, I guess you're right. I mean, in some ways they like that tune and maybe Sergeant Early's dream and, and stuff like that, that they're not quite like Billy in the low ground. I mean, they're not, the you know first tier <laughs> frequent flyers for the bluegrass jams, but the, but they are traditional tunes um, and a little bit more on that old time thing, um, which I, I really like. Yeah, and there's something about the maybe it's the selection of the tunes and the way, but I don't know. But there's something that sounds more European than mm-hmm. the average American. Does that make sense? Like the average recording of American fiddle tunes. I mean, they're not all American tunes. A lot of them came from this side of the pond to start with. But the, the way you, the way you play them feels like it's got a foot in either sort of continent. Yeah. In fact, um, yeah, I can break that down because I think that um, for me, um, and I, I think Jamie is kind of kind of the same way. But I think you know, it's, uh, it's probably coming more a little bit more from me. And and on the first record with my four tunes, like. I don't really listen to, uh, I'm treading carefully on the bluegrass guitar podcast, but I don't really listen to a lot of bluegrass guitar anymore. I mean, I, I I went through that, but, but it's sort of like when with jazz, like I don't really, I used to always say in jazz interviews, I don't really listen to a lot of jazz guitar. I was really never really, I love Wes Montgomery and Grant Green and, and George Benson and all that, but that's not like what I would listen to around the house and stuff. I really loved 
jazz piano more. And I was always trying to think, well, how can I kind of get at that sound on, 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 on the guitar? And I think, um, not to digress, but on my, you know, my jazz stuff, I'll, that's how I, maybe where these things meet too, by the way, but the use of capos, steel string guitar, finger picks, <laughs> you know, a lot of open strings and stuff is about wanting to get away from that just single note thing and chords um, and uh, in the jazz world anyway, or that sort of, and wanting to hear more piano sort of overtones and polyphonic kind of voicing and stuff. Anyway, I'm digressing, but getting back on track here um, with this music, I find that I actually just in the recent years, I'm just listening to more actual fiddles. You know, uh, it just sort of occurred to me, like, I'm really into fiddle tunes. Maybe I should listen to fiddle players. And so to that end, like I mostly listen to um, fiddle players and like Martin Taylor. Um, someone turned me on to Martin Taylor and Dennis Cahill, maybe, I don't know. I don't know how many years ago. And that, that was another like, explosion rewiring of my brain. You know, if I said earlier, I've had like four or five, like major rewirings and, and that, that was in, in, incredible. And, uh, and actually he's a guitar player, Dennis Cahill, who recently passed. Um, if you haven't listened to those duo records, um, you know, anybody hasn't listened to them, you're welcome. <laughs> Cause you know, you're, you're just gonna, I mean, if you're open to that, you know, it's more, I, I'm not like into Irish music per se. I don't know all those tunes, but but those two in particular, and Dennis, in in that style, like a lot of times, um, the guitar will be kind of tuned to dad gad, and they'll use a really thin pick, and they'll strum like really, really hard and fast, and 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 um, you know, it's a little bit of a turnoff to me. And then so Dennis Cahill kind of plays more like Monk or something, just plays like these just very, or he might get there, but but it's a long arc until he gets there, and he starts very minimalistically, and it just again it gets back to that. Sparseness, and so you you're hearing Mart, um, you know, you're hearing um, uh, the fiddle just with all of this room, you know, it's just it's it's incredible. So I love those those Martin Hayes records. Another one is um, uh, this uh, young woman here, um, uh, Jenna Moynihan, who's a um, Scottish, well, she's American, but she's like just really into Scottish fiddle. And she has a record called One Two with this harpist, um, uh, uh, Mari uh, Campbell. If you guys want to look that up, you're welcome for that too. That's probably my favorite record I've heard in the last five or 10 years. Like I listen to it constantly. I think it's incredible. Um, another record that I, I'm just bananas about is this uh, young woman in Scotland, um, or young to me anyway, <laughs> Lauren, Lauren McCall. And she has a record. Um, called uh land skiing and um it's like almost solo scottish airs on fiddle that she recorded in this like uh you have to look it up just in this like grange hall you know where they had to feed quarters into the heater <laughs> and it's very minimalistically recorded of course that's my thing like there's like some drones there's like there's a couple tracks with a little piano but it's really like this these scottish airs um so those are probably my three favorite records. <laughs> and so when I'm playing this music, I'm not so informed by like, you know, G runs and, and the vernacular of a lot of, um, flat picking guitar players. I mean, I love that stuff and I do do some of that stuff, but I'm, but I think I'm coming a little bit more from that. I don't know if Celtic is the right word or just from, from fiddle music. And one last thing I want to say about that fiddle music, as long as I'm thinking about it, it's, I love their, uh, approach to improvisation 
that I'm trying to kind of get more into, which is, you know, just thinking, not even using the word improvisation. If you go into that world, if you read, you know, I'm trying to like get books and study with some of them online and stuff, but do it on the guitar. And it's more about variations, theme and variations, longer threads. I think for guitar players, including yours truly, you know, it's really easy to get stuck in this sort of cut and paste. I got 12 hot licks, you know, and here comes that G chord. I'm going to put that hot G lick there. I'm going to put that hot C and it can become this sort of very modular way of playing where you're kind of, and, and some people, you know, I mean, I, I, again, I've done this too, you know, there, there are, they're killer licks, you know, <laughs> and, and you can get really good and fast at plopping them in there. And it's very impressive, but there's not, it's not like a movie where there's long thread that's pulling you from one end to the other. And so if you li listen to Martin Hayes, you know, you might think, well, he's just playing the melody four times in a row. Yeah, that's true. But if you really listen close, like there's these little variations and, and sometimes a lot of variations. And that to me is a, it's a longer game and um, it's very attractive to me. Um, yeah. It's like going to see a standup that just does like gag after gag after gag versus seeing a standup that has a theme that will weave its way through and they might loop back to something earlier. And just, there's a, there's a sort of, a, they're making a point through the humor rather than just feel like you're being hit in the face with a load of bullet points that might be individually funny, but mm -hmm. you know, and it's, that goes back to that thing about a conversation. If you're just checking pre-prepared bombs into the conversation, you're not really having a conversation. And I, this is one of the things that, um, I have lessons with Brian Sutton on the artist works platform. And nice. you know, my initial thought was he's going to teach me a load of cool stuff to play. And he's not really teaching me what to play at all. He's teaching me why to play and how to play and how to sort of be me and express that through a bunch of wooden steel strings, which is not what I expected at all. Yeah. Um, and is, but is obviously completely the right thing to do. He's a great teacher. I've seen a little bit of that stuff and yeah, he's just, incredibly articulate and amazing and you know obviously an amazing player too so and it's re it's really interesting that point about listening outside of whatever it is you're doing because you do not only does certain music have a certain vernacular but certain instruments like as a guitar player we have certain ways of getting between certain things and certain things that are guitar things and so it's, it's funny just having said before that I don't refer to my notes I just had a quick look now because I did make a note earlier today about there's um there's some sort of sounds on Cuckoo's Nest on the new record that I wrote down that sound almost harp-like. And when you talk about mm. listening to piano players and trying to, like a harp is just a piano that you pluck instead of hit, really, right? So, mm -hmm. like, it's, and I hear that, it's that, that intent you had is coming out, the stuff you listen to outside of the genre that is funneled through your ears and your fingers and your guitar communicated that to me. And, you know, I got the instrument wrong, but I got the intent, I got the intent right. Yeah, I had a friend once I played with who played an auto harp. And I remember thinking, um, like my approach to harmonics now is always thinking about how she would strum on that auto harp. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's how you, how you find your voice as an artist. You know, not everybody's into that. I mean, some people, um, you know, they find it very uh, satisfying. And I'm endlessly impressed. Like if you want to like copy like Tony Rice's, thing like that's incredible i can't do it <laughs> i mean if you can that's you know that's that's amazing or or it could be someone else it could be Eddie van halen or something like teenager in the 80s <laughs> you know but um but i've always really thought first of all i'm not good at that and then second of all i just i just want to have my own voice and so it's always been really important to me to kind of look outside of the pool that i'm swimming in right because if you're just 
copying everybody else is just doing exactly what you're doing, then it's going to be really hard to kind of have your own voice. I'm not saying this is a winning business strategy. <laughs> I'm not, a, you know, I haven't sold a ton of records or anything like that. But I, I, like I know in the jazz world, like I would play in jazz clubs and they would be like, who is this guy playing the steel string with finger picks and in a, in a, in a capo? I'm like, but everybody's got an arch top and has that sort of Herb Ellis guitar tone. So I just, I'm just going to be the, the guy that doesn't, you know, or uh, I'm just going to try to, you know, so I'm always just trying to, it's again, it's that contrast. I'm just kind of want to go the other direction and looking to other instruments um, or, you know, not to get too weird on you, but, but even looking to other you know, art forms and stuff. And just, just thinking about the bigger picture of what it means to be a creative person and have your own voice and your own perspective. And I think looking beyond art, you know, I was talking to somebody before on Facebook about um, how easy it is to slip into like regretting the things you didn't do as a musician and the paths you didn't take. And like in life, you could spend all your time thinking if I'd turned left back then rather than right, but everything I've sort of learned that everything you do, every choice you make gets you to where you are now, which is all who you are. And your job is to express that because nobody else is ever going to be you and you're never going to be anybody else. So the one opportunity you have in life is to be the most fully formed, realized version of you that you can be, which isn't as easy as I make it sound, but like, and as a musician, no. that's just as true. Do you know what I mean? The, the people who there are musicians that I don't get everything that they do, but if they, say, come over here and listen to this. I'm always going to follow them and have a listen because it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, my, yeah, <laughs> well said, you know, I, I always like tell my students like, you know, life is short and everybody else is already taken. Um, <laughs> so you gotta, you know, be yourself. And I think if anyone's interested, I think some tips towards doing that are, um, you know, to think about, I remember I said this, I, if you go on YouTube, I put this series up a long time ago just kind of off the cuff, uh, short essays called the 30 day guitar challenge. So you can find some of these. And one of them was about this subject of kind of finding your own style. Cause again, it's, it's always been really important to me. And I think it's like, you know, just think about, um, what do you really like? I mean, it's sort of a deep question. I mean, maybe, maybe it's sort of a silly question, but it's also like, go sit on the mountain and like, what really resonates with you? Cause we get a lot of messages as guitar players and, and maybe in other things too. Like, this is what you should do. Like you should learn to play this tune. You have to play this tune. You got to be able to play this speed, this tempo. You got to know all this stuff, but, but what do you really like what really, you know, resonates with you? Um, because you can't do everything. You can't pick up every shiny object in the road. I mean, I would love to be also a great, I mean, that's, what's so great about music, right? I'm 57. I've been doing this since I was a little kid and, and that's all I do, you know, um, besides being a dad and a husband and everything. I mean, I'm just doing guitar all the time and I know for sure that I'm going to die a shit flamenco player, <laughs> a shit country player. Like it's as deep as the ocean. I, I still feel like I'm looking down and see no bottom. Right. So, so you can't, begin to do it all. So you need to figure out what are your strengths and weaknesses? You know, I'm not like the world's fastest, cleanest player. So I could spend the rest of my time beating myself up about that or trying or say, okay, well, these are my strengths and my weaknesses. And by looking at them with open eyes, um, that's one of the pathways to finding your style. You know, what, what is it that I do well? And what is it that I don't do well? And, and times, short. <laughs> so let's, let's 
you know, let's figure that out. And what musics really consistently resonate with me? Um, um, you know, it's, it's that kind of refining of the vision and putting blinders on. And, and I think it's harder and harder now in the current world because we're all in this sort of attention war. <laughs> you know, that's another piece of advice for, for young people in particular, but me too. I'm addicted to Instagram too, you know, but you have to be able to, um, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I, I love this uh, writer, Cal Newport, and his book, Deep Work, where, and his other books where he talks a lot about, you know, especially going forward, the people who are going to really stand out and be successful in business and the arts and stuff are the people who really learn how to work deeply um, because that was much more, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to practice guitar when I was a kid. <laughs> if there was nothing on the three channels, <laughs> then that was it, you know? Um but now it's really easy to get caught up in, in all the different things. You know, it's like you're, we're all at a constant cocktail party or something. Um, so we need to refine our vision. We need to tune out the outside of the world, you know, to a certain degree um, in, a, in a, you know, scheduled time and et cetera. And really think about, you know, refining our vision and, and working on it. Um, and then thinking about what you're, I, I think I mentioned in that video too, the 30 gate, guitar challenge on style uh, about another thing that you can do is sort of um, imagine two things together. I think I remember the, the analogy I said was like, if you really like James Brown and you really like Tony Rice, you know, why don't you try to play Cuckoo's Nest, you know, and imagine those two things coming together, you know, like a slightly funkier, maybe kind of behind the beat slowed down thing, you know, but with, Tony Rice's kind of vernacular of lots of flatted third to thirds and flat fifths in there or something, you know, but some, but somehow taking two things that you know, you like and putting them together as just as an exercise can help you develop your own, your own voice. Um, but that's it. Like I said, this is, this is, if you are a creative person and this is what you want to do, you want to uh, make records and have gigs where people come, it, no one's going to come if well, maybe they would. I don't know. Like, if you're the guy who can play just like somebody else and that, that somebody else isn't around and you are, you know, or you could be somebody who has, you know, your own tunes and you play them your own way. Um, but not too weird. I mean, I don't think I can do this like on a tuba with a distortion pedal. I mean, it has to be in the, it has to be in the realm of the music. You know, it's this fine line, um, too, but bring yourself to the table. Bring your whole yeah. to the table. And like, one of the musicians I love most is Nick Drake. And, um, oh, yeah. He, you know, like the people, you see people doing, you know, like a show of Nick Drake songs and they've got the tunings and they've got the finger picking patterns and they can sing them. And it's like, it's astonishing because it's hard stuff to do. But at the same time, they're not Nick Drake. So I don't want to go and watch it because what was great about that was that it was him expressing himself. And it's, there's pain in there and there's joy in there and there's beauty in there. And, and I guess for all sorts of musicians, you know, the best tribute band in the world can be a great night out and a really good, enjoyable evening in a bar. But, yeah. like, you know, character, ultimately, like musical character. It's the thing, you know, talk about touch and timing and technique. It's that word you just use, taste. It's the one thing that you have that will set you apart from everybody else because everybody's mix of stuff that you've chucked in over the years that little bit of iron maiden that went in in the 80s and that bit of opera that i listened to in the 90s and that weird 
TV theme tune, like the Rockford Files, it's constantly stuck in my head on a loop. All those bits come out in whatever you do. You can't stop them. So you might as well yeah. sort of ease the passage and enjoy what comes out. Yeah. And just think of those three things that you just mentioned, how incredibly random. And if I lived another 5 million years, I wouldn't have said those three things in the same breath. And that's what makes you, you, you know, and it's just like getting in touch, getting in touch with that and thinking how you can funnel that into, uh, you know, <laughs> playing the acoustic guitar. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out too, but, and- but that's the vent. That's the road to go down is I, I think, I don't know. And also, uh, write tunes. That's something that I wish I had learned earlier. And now I spend more of my time, excuse me, trying to, you know, come up with my own tunes. I wish I had done that earlier. Um, Jamie, Mark, some of my other, you know, duo partners I talk about a lot, you know, really have a deeper kind of catalog of tunes, but I'm trying to kind of write more. And that's obviously another way to have your own voices, have your own actual tunes that you play. And that, you can that, do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that it sort of feels like a, a really lovely point to to sort of finish on because it takes us right back to where we started, really, I think. And that I said right at the beginning, one of the things that I guess drew me to your music when I first heard it was that voice that had a sense of tone and breath and space and depth and air and intimacy and all those things. That is that's your choice of all those things coming out of you. And the point where we started this conversation has kind of become the point where, where we end it. And it's been a brilliant conversation. I've loved every minute of it. I'd like, thanks so Me much too. for taking the time to come on. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It's been real. It's been a ton of fun. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I really enjoyed that one. Um, here is a track as promised from Eric and Jamie's new record over the waterfall. Um, this track is Cuckoo's Nest, and it's from the album Over the Waterfall by Eric Skye and Jamie Stillway. Enjoy.
Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collinsguitars.com and find out why.